0: Hello, everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you.
1: Our Common Ground pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages. On March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not.
0: There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love.
1: So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you?
0: A hundred (laughs) percent, yeah. Oh my
1: God, I'm there.
0: (laughs) So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year.
1: Chapter 36, The Parting of the Ways. Dumbledore stood up. He stared down at Barty Crouch for a moment with disgust on his face. Then he raised his wand once more, and ropes flew out of it. Ropes that twisted themselves around me. I'm Vanessa Zoltan,
0: and I'm Caspar Tercil,
1: and this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text.
0: I remember so clearly the excitement I felt about the first general election where I could vote. In the UK, you can vote when you're 18. And so I was in college when the first election was coming up and the elections in the UK usually happen in May. So it was towards the end of the first year that I got really excited about a couple of different candidates, one of whom was running in the little town of Norwich. It's not that little, but compared to American towns, it's, it's small. And this candidate, whose name is Rupert, I'd read his writing, and I was really inspired by it. So I got on the train, went to Norwich, arrived there. And that afternoon, we were going to be handing out leaflets, you know, as you do when you're campaigning for someone. And off I went. uh, And in fact, I was partnered with Rupert, the candidate. So very exciting for me. So we got in his car and we drove to a part of town that, again, I didn't know. And it was clearly, you know, a lower income part of town and started knocking on doors and talking to people. And that was really fun. You know, you get to hear people's stories. You get to share what you're enthusiastic about. And there was one family where the kids were playing outside and I immediately felt really good about them. Like they were very welcoming. You know, mum was ironing. Dad was working on something outside. Kids were running around and uh, we just got chatting. And I learned the story that, you know, the dad coached the local youth football club and was very connected to a lot of the young people. And very unfortunately, recently, their little shed with all the storage and their football kit had burnt down. And it wasn't clear if it had been arson or or just an accident, but the team really wanted to find a sponsor that would help them pay for a new kit and a new little shed. And so as I was talking to the dad, he said, you know, what I'd love is if someone who really represented us was elected, someone who... Puts the concerns of our community really at the center of their platform, you know, who can connect us to local businesses and be an advocate for us so that we can get a sponsor for the football team. And I was like, well, have I got a candidate for you? Because I knew that this candidate was passionate about local communities, was really passionate about local engagement and civic leadership and all the community building things that I cared about. So I was like, "Okay, let me go get him and bring him in. And at that point, the dad was like, well, I'm a little hesitant about politicians. You know, so often all they want is just a photo op. You know, all they care about is the media coverage. And I was like, oh, don't you worry. Rupert is different. And so I went to get Rupert. And about 15 minutes later, we came back and dad kind of told his story again. And and I kind of, you know, thumbs up from the side. And then the first thing Rupert asked was, oh, that sounds great. Do you want to come to my media launch on Monday? And it was just one of those moments where I was like, come on, like we're supposed to be different. I was just so disillusioned, not only with the candidate himself, but with the whole process. I was like, the whole point is that we're going out there to engage people in conversation and represent them and be different than the mainstream political circus. And I felt like all I'd been doing was propping up the status quo, and I felt so embarrassed. So as we've been reading this chapter through this theme of disillusionment, I've been reflecting on how much disillusionment is also about the hope that's been built up and the promise that you've been feeling before this moment of disappointment hits. So I'm eager to talk that through with you, Vanessa, today.
1: First of all, I just want to say that that story makes me proud to be your friend. I love that you like got on a train and like went and got involved in politics in such an important and local level. And that is just a beautiful sort of effort. And how crushing to see that amount of effort be treated so inconsequentially.
0: And I get, you know, all of the pressures of a campaign and you're really trying to think strategically about, okay, well, if we do this media thing, then we'll be able to do that so that when I'm in office, I can do A, B and C. And last thing I want to do by sharing the story is to make people not engage in the political process, because I think it's so important that we do that. But it was one of those moments as a young person where maybe you're new and so your expectations are just out of line with some of the harsh realities.
1: Luckily, one thing that no one will ever be disillusioned on is the integrity of our 30-second recaps.
0: Oh, that's so true. They are highly researched, well-paced, detailed, colorful. Really, we we only need to do one an episode because each one is so perfect.
1: Oh, okay. You go right ahead.
0: (laughs) Actually, I think it's your turn to go first, Vanessa, so...
1: Are you going to count me in?
0: Three, two, one, go.
1: They leave Crouch and they go up to the hospital wing and Sirius is there as a very well-behaved dog. And... um, Dumbledore makes Harry tell him the entire story, and he tells the whole story to Sirius and to Dumbledore. And um, they find out that Voldemort, the, the Lily's love isn't going to protect him anymore. And then Prime Minister and McGonagall come up. McGonagall was supposed to be watching over Crouch, and they come up, and they're like, the Dementors killed him. And then um, Hermione and the Weasleys come up. And then at the very end, Hermione goes, ha, we just Skeeter, I caught you.
0: Very good.
1: <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Casper, let's see if for the first time ever you do better than I. (laughs) On your mark, get set, go.
0: Okay, so the big thing that happens here is this sort of power play between Fudge and Dumbledore. And Dumbledore's like, Voldemort's back. Look, we've questioned him with beta serum. Um, we've b- questioned Buddy Crouch. Harry's story totally fits. It all makes sense of everything that's happened this year. And Fudge is like, nah, 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 nah. I can't hear you. I don't want to engage it. And he even says, like, what would this mean? And, Vol- and, and Dumbledore's like, you're, all, you're only thinking about your career. Like, you're, you have to engage this. Otherwise, we part ways. And then he, um, Dumbledore makes Sirius and Snape, like, be friends. And that's the end of the chapter.
1: Well done. So, Casper, almost as if we sometimes plan things on this show, your story beautifully aligns with this moment with Fudge. There's a line in the chapter, something along the lines of, Harry always thought pretty well of Fudge, always seemed like a nice enough guy. But we really see behind the curtain in this moment, and we find out that Fudge is someone who will willingly allow harm in the world in order to preserve his own career. And I think what's so heartbreaking about Fudge revealing himself to be such a jerk in this moment is I can just imagine with all the trauma that Harry has just gone through, now that he's like back safe, it wouldn't occur to him that now he's going to have to start a whole campaign Mm -hmm. of like needing to be believed. That moment reminds me of women who have to decide to have a rape kit test done of, like, this horrible thing has happened to me, and now I'm back in the system's hands that should be a Molly Weasley hug, but it's just this constant re-traumatizing choices that have to be made. I'm wondering what you make of that, if your experience with being disillusioned by a politician impact the way you read this.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting to watch. You know, Harry says he was always a pompous man, but he was not bad. And now we really see the nastiness or the selfishness come through. And I think that's what's most saddening is that we see someone who's in a position of authority where he's unwilling to take the responsibility that matches the authority. He contemplates believing Harry, or he might actually believe Harry, but he's unwilling to accept the implications of what that would mean. Peace time would be over. They have to handle the Dementors differently, which means the whole justice system in the Wizarding World has to change. Like all of these implications, which he's just unwilling to engage.
1: And all of them at the end for him are like, which would result in my not being reelected.
0: Exactly, because they're going to be unpopular. And you know what? Like that actually really relates back to the political question that I shared within my story is that. When you are a politician subject to voters, you're supposed to respond to their intentions, but really it's become this kind of showmanship rather than real content that drives people's popularity. And it's it's this very dysfunctional two-way system that I think Fudge is having to respond to as well. But the other disillusionment that really struck me was Dumbledore's disillusionment with Fudge, because he literally says, well, you will respond in your way, but I'm going to respond in mine. And I think... There's plenty of challenges with Dumbledore throughout this book that we'll no doubt dig into. But what I do really like that in the face of disillusionment, Dumbledore says, I'm not going to play that game. I'm still going to stand for what I think is the right thing to do. And I think that inspires Harry's reaction too. you know, next year, he's going to struggle and struggle and struggle and keep trying to share what he knows to be true, even in the face of huge resistance.
1: Right, which gets to, I think, one of the essential questions about disillusionment, which is what do we do in the face of it?
0: Right, exactly.
1: Because when you are disillusioned, you are getting sort of a barrage of new information. And there are a couple of key moments in my life when I can remember being disillusioned. And one of them was in 2004 when it had been very clear to me that george w bush had like proven himself to be an inept president and i was so confident that this country understood that Mm. and then to watch us re-elect george w bush i was heartbroken i remember thinking this is not Mm. the country i thought it was and i think that i spent that time being sad about it instead of resisting and trying to change it and then trump there was like a re-disillusionment. You know, it was sort of the George W. Bush re-election turned to volume eleven. And that inspired me to action this time. And I think both reactions are fair though, right? One of just like heartbreak and being like, Do you know what? I don't understand you. I'm taking a break. But I think the more important one is one of like, we have a lot of work to do. Let's step up.
0: Yeah, I think that's sequential in some way. And I think actually the text helps us see that because In this chapter, as I said, Harry is in the hospital wing. He gets taken there, gets put into bed by Madame Pomfrey and given, you know, a swig of this juice that's going to send him to sleep. And there's this really interesting line that we see in the text. He did not care. He was even glad of it. And there's something about that needing to literally rest in Harry's case and kind of having a moment of respite. I love that he really experiences that and speaks to that by having that moment where he just doesn't want to engage anymore. Like he doesn't want to tell the story again. He doesn't want to have any conversations about it because he needs this time to kind of recuperate. And then when he's ready, he's going to re-engage in this really bold and brave way. So I see those two things as kind of sequential.
1: Obviously, like the big disillusionment in this chapter is Harry's with his government. But I would imagine that I'm just really thinking about Molly she is getting all sorts of new information. She sees Sirius turn. She's like, oh, apparently murderers are here. She's finding out that Voldemort has risen. And she, I feel like, of everyone in this room, maybe except for Snape, has the least information about the current situation and the most historical context. Mm. And I'm wondering how I can be more like Molly because I can imagine being so mad about so much and instead all she cares about is taking care of Harry. Mm. And I think that that is the right move. Mm. It's not about her in this moment. She's going to have a lot of Order of the Phoenix conversations with Dumbledore and others about what happened. And she is just so focused on the thing to do is to take care of Harry.
0: It's amazing. And she really reminds me of... The phrase non-anxious presence in the midst of chaos or in the midst of big changes where there's a lot of anxiety and worry and fear and all of these things that you're describing if you can be the person or one of the people who who just decides not to react how much more capacity you have just to be non-anxious I'm sure she came into that room being like all I care about is Harry. I know my children are safe. That's my first responsibility. Now let me tend to Harry. Because the clarity of your role, I feel like that's what she's embodying, like that clarity of focus, that decision to not react in a way that would be more destabilizing for everyone around her. That takes huge spiritual maturity, I think.
1: I do too. And the other thing that I'll say that impresses me in this moment is that Dumbledore steps into sort of a pastoral thing where he's coordinating Harry's care
0: he's very clear about setting boundaries
1: yeah and he's like Harry I need you to relive this once I need the real information and I actually think it'll help you I think everybody has different ideas about caregiving in these moments and Dumbledore is like Harry can correct me but what I'm gonna say is this He just really steps into a full authority in this moment and sets boundaries and standards for Harry.
0: And I love that he says numbing the pain for a while will make it worse when you finally feel it, making him relive the story for the first time. And then he gives this purple liquid concoction that will help Harry sleep and making sure he doesn't have to tell it again. That's the perfect mix in some way for the the practical safety of everyone else, but also respecting Harry's needs, which is beautiful. Uh, You mentioned Snape, which I think is really important. Because in this scene, Snape does a couple of really, really hard things. I agree. He has that interaction with Sirius where Dumbledore's very clear, like, we have a bigger enemy to fight. You two need to put this behind you. Otherwise, we can't do our job.
1: And Snape knew that Dumbledore helped Sirius escape. Of course he did. And he doesn't even get—forget that he doesn't get to take a victory lap. He doesn't even get it acknowledged. He doesn't even get a moment of, like— I know. You knew. I couldn't tell you. I need to tell you now. Nothing. It's just this like big suck it up moment for Snape. And he doesn't even get a moment to be like, I knew it.
0: And not only that, the same of Mad-Eye Moody, because Moody was looking through his office for an unclear reason, right? There's that whole incident on the staircase where Moody comes to Harry's rescue. So many things are absolutely legitimizing Snape's frustration. But then Dumbledore says, Snape, you know what you need to do, which of course is go back to Voldemort's side and be a double agent. And I think Molly and Snape are both putting the service of this bigger goal at the front of every decision that they're having to make in the scene. And it's a huge ask.
1: You know, and I just think for both of them, to some extent, it has to be because they really know who they are. Mm. And it's like, when you know who you are, when you know what your values are, even in tough moments where the world around you has crumbled, you're like, but I know the thing that I have to do. Yeah,
0: And I think this is a beautiful comparison, Vanessa, because where we've seen Snape and Molly and Dumbledore do that inner work to know what their North Star is, to be clear about their values and their commitments, Fudge has never done that.
1: Uh, Or when he did, he figured out, a really bad North Star, which is I will be a leader at any cost.
0: You know, I think that the same is true with Draco in some way, not particularly in this chapter where we don't see him, but, you know, we see characters in these books who can't get out of their own imagination of who they are. They just can't picture a life that is different from the steps they have chosen. And i that's what I love so much about Snape's storyline is here is someone who was deep, deep in. I mean, he has the tattoo of the Death Eaters on his arm, and yet he was still able to imagine a different possibility for himself and was willing to undergo the huge pain of what that change meant. And Fudge is just too afraid of that shift, I think.
1: So, Casper, one of the, like, badass Hermione moments happens in this chapter. So badass. To be honest, this is the first time I noticed it. So Harry's just been given the money, and Molly is, like, fawning over him. And it's very sad. And then all of a sudden, we hear, like, a slap. And it is Hermione capturing Rita Skeeter when she's in beetle form. And this is how Rita has been getting all this information. And Hermione's just figured it out and caught her. Hermione's about to torture Rita Skeeter for a pretty prolonged period of time, stick her in a jar, threaten her and keep her in a jar for weeks.
0: I mean, I freaking love this moment. And it is in part because we're seeing the completion, I think, of an arc of Hermione's character that started way back in book one. When we meet Hermione, she's all about following the rules. She's about asking teachers for permission. She's about not daring to miss a class, right? She's a goody two shoes. And that starts to shift as she wants to be friends with Harry and Ron. And she starts to see that there's other things that are more important than just the rules, which we've talked about a lot with Hermione. At this point, what I love is that she's not even engaging the people who set the rules, either to like ask permission to do something, to find out why the situation is as it is. She's doing all of this independently. And then even when she takes action, she's not involving other people, especially not authority figures, in the celebration of it because it might risk the action that she has chosen. She is judge, jury, and executioner here.
1: And really, you're okay with that? I do think that it's inspired by disillusionment. I think she's like, apparently, the Daily Prophet just prints stuff without more than one source. Apparently, And animagi are not well regulated. That's right. I decided that that was the plural. Apparently, all sorts of things. And she's like, fine, if that's the way that you're going to run your world, then I'm going to do this my own way.
0: Totally. And especially as she's seeing the state infrastructure literally collapse in front of her with Fudge just not willing to take responsibility I think she's clear that we've entered a new age. She's the first one to really catch on, certainly amongst the student body. And that's going to continue with the creation of the Order.
1: I find that all very compelling. I'm curious, what if she had said to Dumbledore, Hi, I know this looks like a bug, but this is actually Rita. And Dumbledore had dealt with a deal with Rita and had been like, We won't turn you in if you print that Voldemort has risen again. I just think that your face right now is so rude. No,
0: All I'm thinking is Dumbledore would make her like a second gamekeeper.
1: (laughs) That is so insulting to Hagrid. I just think that Hermione's reaction to disillusionment is like, so the only person I can really trust is myself.
0: That's true. And that leads to all sorts of missed opportunities.
1: Yes. To some extent, that is like the moral of all dystopian novels. You can never trust anyone except yourself. And that is the thing I think we are existentially potentially most scared of is that everybody else is in on something and we are the only ones who we can trust. And Hermione is letting her disillusionment lead her to acting out of that fear. The bad has already won. If she doesn't feel comfortable, if Hermione Louise Granger, I just made up that middle name. <laughs> It's a good one. Thank you. Doesn't believe that she can go to Dumbledore in this moment or McGonagall.
0: Well, what you're pointing to is, I think, maybe slightly a false dichotomy. She is certainly rejecting the established institutional leadership and obvious authority figures. But what we see in the next book, it's not that she only trusts herself, but she only trusts systems and institutions that she's part of making, that she has a voice in. And so I think the fact that she builds this incredible team out of like school children that then takes on these death eaters and, you know, is able to get through it speaks to just a little more nuance in what I do think is a totally fair picture. Vanessa, it's time for our spiritual practice, and we are going to the fabulous St. Ignatius of Loyola's practice of imagining ourselves into a story. And so it's time for Sacred Imagination. What passage did you choose for us today?
1: Well, I would like to invite everybody to get into as meditative a stance as is safe for you to do so. I recently tried to close my eyes while walking. It's a bad idea. <laughs> but definitely feel yourself in your body and concentrate as much as you can. Snape strode forward, past Dumbledore, pulling up the left sleeve of his robes as he went. He stuck out his forearm and showed it to Fudge, who recoiled. There, said Snape harshly, there... The dark mark. It's not as clear as it was an hour or so ago when it burned black, but you can still see it. Every Death Eater had the sign burned into him by the Dark Lord. It was a means of distinguishing one another, and his means of summoning us to him. When he touched the mark of any Death Eater, we were to disapparate and apparate instantly at his side. This mark has been growing clearer all year, Karkarov's too. Why do you think Karkaroff fled tonight? We both felt the mark burn. We both knew he had returned. Karkaroff fears the Dark Lord's vengeance. He betrayed too many of his fellow Death Eaters to be sure of a welcome back into the fold. Fudge stepped back from Snape too. So what were you picturing?
0: I think I I felt like I was Snape in the scene and I could feel my like, um... Being shown, And at first it felt like I was showing a tattoo, but then it felt more like I was showing a really, like something medical, like something that's gone wrong with my body that's disfigured and it's disgusting. Like the way that fudge stands back in horror and is like offended by my body really struck me. I was seeing a lot of natural imagery, this idea of all these death eaters that feel this connection, like aspen trees, you know, how they stand as separate trees, but underneath all these roots are connected and it's actually one larger organism. I don't know it felt very very uncomfortable like my body was not my own. Yeah, I felt very uncomfortable. How about you?
1: I also was snape and there was almost a smugness mm. to how I felt of like I will show you with my body. You can't possibly deny truths on my body and also just this willingness to use my body as a piece of evidence.
0: Mm. Especially as he's killed the other evidence in a body in terms of Barty Crouch Jr.
1: Right. I don't know if if I'm having sort of like a perspective-changing moment. I still hate Snape. But this moment is so beautiful to me. Mm. It is acknowledging in front of everybody who he hates most in the world Mm. that he was a death eater and I'm not ashamed of it. Mm. And I am now using this power for good Mm. And, you know, there were two images that kept coming to mind for me, which were one of, obviously, given my family history, concentration camp tattoos. Three of my four grandparents had tattoos from Auschwitz and my grandmother, who didn't only because people were coming in so fast, they couldn't keep up with the tattoos. But all of them just responded so differently to it. Mm -hmm. My grandmother really never wore short sleeves and she wasn't ashamed of it. She just, like, didn't want to deal with other people's feelings. Mm -hmm. And then my grandfathers would wear short sleeves and just sort of let other people feel their feelings in front of them and not really emotionally engage. But then the moment of disgust reminded me in the early part of the AIDS crisis— Yes. When we assumed that the lesions mm. on AIDS victims' bodies would like create all this disgust and people would be like, Should, I shouldn't touch them and exactly. I can't use a toilet seat after them.
0: Yeah, I was reminded of these scenes from Angels in America, that instinctive repulsion to like, I'm going to get what you have and it's going to kill me.
1: And then the just like beauty of people in those bodies mm. instead saying, here is my body and I'm still a person.
0: It's so interesting because I felt it the other way around. I felt deeply shamed. I felt like by sharing or showing my body, I was not vindicated. I I was, in fact, condemned.
1: And my guess is that to a large extent, it's both, both, (laughs) right?
0: Right. There's also a sense that Snape is so frustrated that Fudge has it so easy. Here's Snape who's had to make these huge decisions, partly because of his own earlier choices, no doubt, but has had to make these really big decisions which have such enormous implications and take enormous internal courage and conviction and he's watching someone fail at that right now and so there's something about the bearing of skin or the showing of a body that also suggests something of like look look at yourself look internally look at your own body and that's what i love about snape in this moment is that he that in showing the dark mark he's actually showing the fact that he's not a death eater anymore
1: yeah, and he's also just differentiating himself from Karkarov too, right? Yes. Your comment made me think of that, that he was like Karkarov fled, which also I think demonstrates to everyone in the room that Snape really is a double agent. We're seeing Snape in his true double agentness. This is sort of the only moment. Yeah.
0: I'd never thought about that, that this is a reveal physically, but it's a huge reveal strategically to a bunch of people, especially Fudge, who is untrustworthy of that kind of information.
1: Yeah. But he, like, has obviously looked around this room and been like, okay. Yeah. Right. And he doesn't know that Harry knows that he was a Death Eater. Right. Like, we have just learned that in the pensive. Right. I see this as, like, a moment of real bravery.
0: That's beautiful. Our voicemail, Vanessa, today is from Kelly Webb.
2: Hi, Casper and Vanessa. Uh, my name is Kelly. I just found your podcast fairly recently, so I'm super behind, but I still wanted to call in and leave a voicemail. I just finished Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban with you guys, and uh, I really wanted to talk about what you guys were talking about with Harry Potter's memory, happy memory when he cast the Patronus. Um, You were saying it's not really a happy memory because it's more him feeling confident that he knows that he's done it before, which is actually not at all how I interpreted that moment either now or when I initially read the books. How I saw that moment was I always believed that Harry Potter's happy memory was standing on the other side of the lake and seeing what he believes to be his father and that feeling and knowing that his father is, like, looking out for him and um, still protecting him. And I think that's the thing about memories is that even though they're not necessarily true, like, he knows that that isn't the case, that feeling still exists. That happy memory is still, like, a visceral one that he can connect to. And I always saw that as the thing that uh gives him the power to cast the Patronus.
1: Kelly, thank you so much for that voicemail. And I've been thinking a lot about the role of, like, the stories we tell ourselves and how intentional we can be in the stories we tell ourselves. At what point do we get to rewrite our past stories and tell a more positive version? Mm. So it's like there's certain memories in my life, and I know I'm probably the only one who did embarrassing <laughs> things like in middle school. And I've always told myself stories that like that's shameful and I shouldn't talk about it. But at a certain point, there's so much time that's passed that you're like, oh, that was developmentally appropriate. And you can shift. I'm wondering if we're like okay with that, if we're okay with starting to rewrite our own pasts with like intention.
0: I love that you use the phrase developmentally appropriate because that does not end in middle school. Like I had a conversation recently with someone who's much, much older and I was talking about some of the things that like I'm uncomfortable with about myself now. And they literally said, oh, you're 31. That's developmentally appropriate. (laughs) It was such a relief. And I think this is what healing is. It's about telling a different story about what happened. It's a very liberating thing to feel like we have agency to do that because when we're trapped in a story of who we are, that's when we feel like trapped in who we're going to become. I mean, we've talked about this in this episode, is that at some point, Snape felt like a different story was possible for him. And what I love about that is that it was inspired by love, that he felt something that was bigger than him, that it called something out of him that he didn't know he had, in a little creepy, obsessive way. But there was something honest and true there. And And we look at someone like Wormtail... And Peter Pettigrew has never encountered that kind of new possibility, like that a new story for himself. So if we're walking around the world, and I love what, what Kelly says, like feeling trapped somehow in the story of who we were, it takes real effort and it's worth it to imagine a new story.
1: Yeah, and maybe to some extent we can only rewrite our stories in hindsight. When I was recently healing from my surgery... Every night, my partner would check in with me, and I'd be like, I think I'll feel tip-top tomorrow. And he was like, you keep saying that? And, mm-hmm. like, and finally, he said, you can't write this story while you're in the middle of it. You don't know how you're going to feel tomorrow, and that's okay.
0: That's so wise.
1: And I just wanted to be well tomorrow, so I kept being like, no, no, tomorrow's going to be the day that I feel better. And it's only in looking back on the healing process that I'm going to be able to like write a story somehow based on the truth of what this surgical experience was like, but trying to write it in the middle, it wasn't saying anything true about my experience.
0: Right. And I think that's how we can get disillusioned to kind of tie it into this theme of the episode. When we try and fix the story or we try and make it different from how it is and we keep hitting up against the reality, like that's when we might get disillusioned. So I love that idea of not trying to write the story when we're in the middle of it to give it just a bit more space before we string it all together. Vanessa, it's time for us to offer a blessing to someone in the pages of this chapter. And I'm going to go first this week because I want to bless Poppy Pomfrey. She's a little bit of a background character in this scene, as she so often is, even in her own domain. And we talked about people who have this non-anxious presence, Molly and Snape. But Madame Pomfrey embodies that always. I mean, the amount of situations that must happen in Hogwarts and her response to them are just incredible but she is never overwhelmed she's never lost in terms of how she'd respond to it so this blessing is just for anyone who particularly in the caring professions you know as soon as you encounter a doctor or a nurse or someone who's looking after you in some sort of medical context you're just so grateful so to anyone who works in those fields thank you for everything you do how about you, Vanessa?
1: I would like to bless Minerva McGonagall for this awful moment. So she is, like, standing guard over Crouch, and then Fudge comes in and kills Crouch against her will, even though she's him off And so she marches Fudge up to the hospital wing to, like, tell Dumbledore. And Dumbledore says to her, Minerva, I'm surprised at you. I asked you to stand guard over Barty Crouch. If I were McGonagall, that would drive me insane. She has come up here yelling and screaming. Dumbledore, read the signs. Obviously, this has not gone the way McGonagall wants. I think that Dumbledore is probably playing innocent to figure out what happened. But as a woman in charge, it just must be so infuriating. She was given a task. She was doing it well. Steamroller. She comes upstairs and Dumbledore is publicly blaming her for something that he may or may not know wasn't her fault. And she is just a pawn in these more powerful men's psychological games with each other. And we know she's the most competent person in this room and she is having to play dumb and let this go. And I think it is because her North Star is so clear and she knows who she is and she knows that this isn't the time to be like, you're only stepping over me because I'm a woman. Mm. And the amount of bile you have to swallow in those moments make you sick. Mm. And so this is a blessing for women who just stay silent while men talk over them and use them as their pawns in their bigger game. And the moments in which we have to stay silent Because that is not actually the most important thing that's happening in the room in that moment. But man.
0: Literally, man. Man. (laughs) You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or leave us a review on iTunes. Or send us a voicemail, but don't send us a voicemail about what Hermione's actual middle name is. We know it's not Louise, it's Jean, but I kind of like Louise. It's better. Next week, we'll read chapter 37, The Beginning, through the theme of love, live from our show in London. This episode was produced by Arianna Nettleman, me, Casper Terkail, and Vanessa Zolton. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're part of the Panoply Network, where you can find ours and other great shows on Panoply FM.
1: Thanks this week to Kelly Webb for our wonderful voicemail, to Rebecca and Charlie Ludley, to Julia Argy, and to Stephanie Paulsell. We will talk to you from London next week. Everybody go to sleep now so you're not jet-lagged. What you gotta get ahead? It, they say it's a day an hour. I'm serious. You're Snape.
0: I'm Snape. Snape. Severus Snape. Dumbledore. That's the blooper. There we go. Harry Potter. Harry.